Well, as we kick off our new ministry year, that always marks a good time for us to step back a little bit and to think about um, what we want to do as a church and, um, and what we want to be. And even right down to what we want to look like. What are the principles that guide us? And because one of the principles that guides us is that we believe in the absolute uh, and total authority and sufficiency of the Bible as the very word of God, we want to answer these kinds of questions using the Bible. We should be able to see answers for these kinds of questions anywhere and everywhere in the Bible. And so we can see something about our aim as a church in the text that we're presently walking through. Here at our church, we'd like to, we like to make our way through books of the Bible, verse by verse. That's the way uh, we like to do things. Not that we always do that. We sometimes will go into some topical series, but that's sort of the default thing that we do when we teach God's Word, when we do our sermons, and when we worship together. And we've just last week started making our way through 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, as it turns out, is a great place to get answers about God's design for the church. If you were here last week, we noted that Paul, who wrote uh, this letter to Timothy, Timothy, who was his uh, loyal uh, pupil, who was his assistant, who was his friend, who was, as it says in verse 2, his true child in the faith, Paul tells us exactly why he wrote this letter down in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And I just want to make a note, if you're visiting here for the first time, if you're new to the Bible, uh, when I talk about uh, books and verses and and chapters, uh, if you open your Bible, you'll see some big, bold numbers. Those are the chapter headings. And the little verses that are in the the body of the the text, those are called, those are the verses. So go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. And maybe just a little, another side note, as I think about that, you might have seen this in your bulletin, but we have... Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you, and we've just ordered a whole bunch of new ones. And that, was, that came as a result of some donations you made to uh, Dunk the Pastor and the Elders um, back at our church picnic. Uh, the donations went towards purchasing new Bibles for our chairs, and we've just gotten those in. And we even have 10 large print Bibles for people like me. Um, so they are on the tables in the back. If you wanna, want to help yourself to one of those, just take one and put it back at the end of the service. And we'd love to share those with you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, make sure you use it today and then take it home with you. That's our gift to you. We want everyone to have the Word of God in their home. So if you don't have a Bible, help yourself to one of the ones that's in the chairs in front of you. All right, I was going to talk about 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. Paul says this. He says, I am writing these things to you. So Paul gives us a purpose statement. This is why he wrote 1 Timothy. Why did he write it? He says, so that you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I look forward to dissecting that verse a little bit more in the, in the weeks and months to come. But here in this letter, we have some marching orders on what the church ought to be doing. Uh, a church that is run by God. It is God's household. That place where the living God rules. God lives in and through his people. And therefore, God's people are called to live in a certain way. God calls them to live in a certain way. And when our creator tells us, his created created beings, to live in a certain way, it would be good for us to listen. And so when we look for the principles that guide Wetaskiwin Mission Church, 1 Timothy is a good place to look. Paul is writing this book so we can know these things. 
so that we can be uh, maybe recalibrated in what we ought to be doing. And we can see the kind of target that we should be aiming at right in the first few words of this letter. So just follow along in your Bible. I'm just going to read a few verses, three of them, from 1 Timothy 1 and verses 3, 4, and 5. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, writing to Timothy here, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the word of God. So in verses 1 and 2, we see that this is Paul writing to Timothy. And here in verse 3, Paul writes to tell him to stay put in the city of Ephesus. He already told him that, but now he puts it in writing, remain at Ephesus. Maybe Timothy might have seen how big of a repair job there was in Ephesus and and protested that he'd rather go to Macedonia with Paul. But whatever happened, Paul says, stay right there. He's telling him, you're exactly the right guy to deal with the situation there and to set things in order. This letter is going to have my name behind it, Paul is saying, and and I've got God's charge behind me, and so you can handle this, Timothy. You'll be okay. Go in there and set things right. Set, them, set things in order. And that begs the question, what had gone wrong there? What was out of order in the church at Ephesus? Well, Paul had visited that city probably maybe five or six years before this. And for Ephesus in particular, he not only visited, he had spent three years there. Three full years. So he didn't just give them the gospel and then leave for the next place. He, he gave them the gospel, he planted a church there, and he actually established a church there. It was well-rooted, it was healthy, it had good leaders trained up by the Apostle Paul himself. Well, even though he had left things in good shape, in his farewell address to that church, he already saw that things might go sideways. And we actually have those Uh, last words before I leave speech in the book of Acts in chapter 20. So just turn to Acts 20. Keep your finger in our little bookmark or something in 1 Timothy 1 and go back to Acts 20. Now he's talking to the leaders here just before he, he's actually not in Ephesus anymore. He's at a little town just south of there in Miletus. Um, But he he, he asks to talk to the elders. And so the elders come down and he and he talks to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And just pick it up in verse, uh, verse 27. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years, here's how we can tell that Paul was there for three years, for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul knew what was coming. 
And now, four to five years later, it's happening. It's here. They're in Ephesus. They've infiltrated the church. And Paul gives Timothy the assignment, the privilege, although Timothy may not have seen it that way, gives him the privilege of dealing with them for the good of the church and for the cause of the gospel. Well, we see the kind of thing that Paul warned about in those words that I just read. He tells Timothy now to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on there or what exactly it was that was being taught. Even these words here are kind of cryptic, uh, uh, myths and endless genealogies. All we know, though, is that it was under the category, Paul put it under the category of a different doctrine. One Bible translation calls it strange doctrine. They were teaching. It was, uh, it was doctrinaire even what they were teaching. It just wasn't the gospel. It was strange. But people were getting attracted to it. And, and, and so even though it might have been strange doctrine, people in the church were being convinced of what was being taught. Sometimes, you know, people can teach off-the-wall strange stuff, and everyone knows it's strange and off-the-wall, and and you can just sort of dismiss it out of hand. That's weird, that's wacko, you know, we don't give it another listen. But for Paul to say something to Timothy about this meant it was somehow drawing people away. People were getting, verse 4, devoted to it. It created a following. They were becoming devotees. Down in verse 6, it says people were swerving and wandering away. They were getting distracted and they were getting diverted from the gospel and from the truth of God's word. They were attracted to these different doctrines. And so Paul sends Timothy in there to get after it, to, to challenge it, to confront it, and to tell these false teachers to plain stop it. So when we think about who we want to be as a church, from a negative Uh, take a hard-line perspective, we want to make sure we remove any threats to the gospel. Or, to say it positively, we want to make sure we promote a true, a a pure gospel, rather than, to verse 4, promote speculations. What we want to promote is something that is black and white. It is not something speculative. It is not something abstract. To say that very simply, we teach the Bible. We're a Bible-teaching church. That might sound obvious for a church, but it's actually not so patently obvious in every church anymore. Churches might say they teach the Bible, but sometimes you have to dig hard to unearth it, to unearth any reference to it even. Some pastors might even start with one verse from the Bible, often removed from its context, and then you know, gently set it aside with a smile, put it aside, and then go into some sort of inspirational, motivational, uh, make sure everyone feels good about themselves kind of message. There are two categories of churches that seem to, be, seem to me, anyways, to be thriving these days. And these two are sometimes one and the same. They can, number one, be churches that promote a prosperity gospel. Jesus wants you, wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. These kinds of churches are, 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 are dotting the landscape of really the entire world. It's a North American import that's, been, that's gone out into the whole world now. Or, number two they can be what some call the attractional model of the church. And by that I mean churches that cater their messages 
to draw people in, to draw more people, to draw numbers, and to not offend anyone. Never offend anyone. That would not be good for church growth. Their goal is to gather and to attract more people, specifically more unchurched people, which in some ways we should say is a noble goal. But they know that the best way to gather more people is to not be too offensive, to not say a whole lot about personal sin, to have a smooth and professional performance and presentation, to make sure they are innovative and relevant. They want to make sure church is an experience that people are attracted to. Well, the danger is self-evident that these kinds of churches, uh, these kinds of churches actually make up most, not all, of what we would call megachurches. These kinds of churches attract the most people. But it's just lately now that some people are starting to find that one of the marks of these churches is the absence of the Bible and the absence of, uh, of helping people grow in their faith. Read an article this week interviewing a reporter and author who wrote a book called The Invisible Bestseller. From the title, you can tell that the Bible is uh, perpetually, of course, on the bestsellers list, bestseller list. It always has been for, uh, well, probably since the Reformation. But its contents are largely unknown. He says this, I quote, he says, The Bible has become a museum exhibit, hallowed as a treasure, but enigmatic and untouched. In other words, many people are happy to have a nice Bible sitting on display in their homes, but they don't really know what it says. Anyways, this author decided to do a a, a two-year tour to figure out why this was the case. Now, I won't go through all his findings, but in the interview, he was asked this. He, He was asked, in all your travels and in all the different places you went looking for the Bible... Was there any place where you were expecting to see the Bible where it wasn't? His answer? Quote, in the megatype churches. The churches that were heavily loaded with the visual and the audio and the rest of the electronic stuff. The music. I was really stunned by what I saw as that alternative version of Christianity being delivered through those means. I didn't consider it biblical in the fullest sense. I thought it was highly stylized the versions of Jesus, who Jesus was, being filtered through these videos. And in some way, I found it almost shocking in how they seem to vary from the much fuller picture that exists in the New Testament. So I was surprised by that. End quote. Well, that might just be the modern version of myths and endless genealogies. The reporter called it alternative forms of Christianity. Paul called it a different doctrine. Same thing. And what it had in common is that people were being attracted to it. But the antidote to that kind of thing is simply to teach the Bible. To teach it exclusively, to teach it faithfully, week in and week out. To teach it, uh, we call it teaching it expositionally, which means to expose people to the words of God. Not to our slick presentations and, and hip art forms. We want people to be exposed and attracted to God and to his word and to his wisdom on how to live lives for his glory. Well, it's the elder's job to guard you and to protect you from different doctrines that threaten to distract and to divert you. And that's who Paul was addressing in Acts 20. The elders are the ones that need to pay attention to the flock and to care for the church of God. How? 
by being alert for people speaking twisted things. Things that might sound good to lots of people, but aren't necessarily true. To draw people away from the truth and from the whole counsel of God. And the way to pay attention, the way to care for the flock is by being biblically faithful. We have a tagline on our Facebook page that says, We aim to be God-exalting, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, and biblically faithful. Like I said, we want to remove threats from the pure gospel while promoting and teaching God's word. We believe that that's uh, the stewardship or the order from God that is by faith. This is what we as a church have been commanded by God to do. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so our aim is to preach the word. That's our strategy for combating false teaching, false teaching and false teachers. And that's our way of protecting the sheep. We want you to know God's word so well and so intimately that when you hear something different, you'll be able to say, whoa, hold on, that doesn't sound quite right. Something sounds different. That's a different doctrine. And so we labor hard to make sure that we teach the true gospel, not another gospel. We aim to teach sound doctrine, not a different doctrine. We believe this to be the stewardship from God that is by faith. I saw this line yesterday from J.I. Packer. You might know J.I. Packer who wrote a great book called uh, Knowing God many years ago now. He's a uh, venerable British teacher and author, now lives in, in, on the West Coast in, in Vancouver. He says this, he says, Doctrinal preaching teaching, uh, or teaching certainly bores the hypocrites, but it, it is only doctrinal preaching that will save Christ's sheep. The preacher's job is to proclaim the faith, not to provide entertainment for the unbelievers. In other words, to feed the sheep rather than to amuse the goats. End quote. Well, as we kick off our ministry year, let's be reminded that we aim to remove threats to the gospel by regarding God's word as our authority. Not only giving you that idea and telling you that, but actually doing it functionally. And by seeing it as sufficient for all of life. We want God's word to be in the middle and the core of everything that we do. You can observe this in the, in the various ministries that we have. In Sunday school, our children will be starting to go through Genesis this fall and making their way through the Bible. Our men's Bible studies, uh, study is going through a book called Men of the Word. One of our ladies' Bible studies is studying Ephesians. Another is going through the book of Acts. And a third is looking at God's biblical design for womanhood as it's given in God's word. Awana is big on having children memorize scripture. We could go on and on, but we aim as a church to be biblically faithful and we want to continue to go down that track. And then another one of our targets can be seen there in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. After Paul tells Timothy to, quote, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, he says positively, the aim of our charge then is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so it is with us. This is a reminder that we want to, what we want to be here at Wetaskiwin Mission Church. We want to be devoted, not to myths and endless genealogies, we want to be devoted to love. We want to be known from our, for our love, our love for God upwards and our love for each other outwards. Love is the mark of a Christian. It is the highest virtue. 
John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is what makes us different and distinct in a world that is more focused on self-love. Paul must have written this because people that taught a different doctrine, these, that were, these other teachers, false teachers that were teaching a different doctrine, weren't likely marked by their love. False teachers are usually only marked by self-love. Their hearts are impure, their consciences are evil, their faith is insincere and pretentious and not genuine often. Paul encouraged Timothy to tell people not to be preoccupied with mystical, subjective, fanciful stuff, but to rather be preoccupied with love. Love, as I said, that flows in every direction, upward from us to God, first downward from God to us, and upward from us to God, and outward then to one another, and then even into the world. This is Wetaskiwin Mission Church's target. This is where we want to set our aim. We don't want to promote speculation. We want to promote love. We don't want to be devoted to myths and endless genealogies. We want to be devoted to love. So, do we actually generate this kind of love? Where does it come from? How do we hit our target? Well, thankfully, Paul provides the answers right here. Love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's actually a great summary of how we can foster love in ourselves and in our church. It's a great way to take inventory of whether our aim hits the bullseye. It's a great checklist to go through as we aim and before we shoot at the target. The aim of our charge is love that issues from those three things. All of them carry great gospel truth. And so let's just very quickly, too quickly, take them one at a time. First, a pure heart. We can truly love God and each other only when we have a pure heart. Is your heart clean? The heart uh, in the Bible, as it's given, usually represents our total being, our minds, our emotions, our our wills. It, It makes us take stock of our moral condition. Do we have pure hearts? Well, when we think about it that way, there is one big obstacle to a pure heart. And Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, desperately wicked. That's our natural heart, our, our natural whole person. Psalm 24, verse 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And the good news of the gospel is that God does cleanse deceitful, wicked hearts. In Psalm 51, after... David had committed a heinous sin. He, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What he hopes God will do for him happened ultimately through Christ. God cleans our hearts once and for all through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross as we turn from our sins and as we look up to Jesus in faith to rescue us and to clean our hearts. And as Christians and as a church, we want to keep repenting and to confess our sins in deep sorrow and contrition. Love issues from a clean heart. Love also issues from a good conscience. What is the conscience? John MacArthur defines it as the God-created, self-judging faculty of humans. Created by God, self-judging 
We judge it, faculty of humans. In other words, God gives us a conscience whereby we know whether something is good or bad. That goes for Christians and non-Christians alike. Ben read about that in Romans 2. Our consciences can, can either accuse us or excuse us. But as a Christian, your conscience, along with the rest of your being, has been redeemed. So now you can judge your conscience to be either good or bad, depending on whether it approves the kinds of things that are pleasing to God. So when you have a good conscience, it won't condemn you. But we have to keep asking God to train our conscience so that we do what is good and and, and that we do what is loving. We have to monitor our thoughts. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And when we do that, the natural result of that is that we will love people. For example, if our thoughts tell us to serve ourselves, to not help that person that's in need over there, we need to stop right there as believers and take that thought captive. That that goes against the very character of Jesus. So we need to imprison that thought. We lock it up, and, and instead we hear Jesus say things like, I have not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Or we hear Philippians 2, where it says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have the mind of Jesus, who took the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death. The cross, that's the, the highest expression of love in human history. And that's where our thoughts should go when we're tempted to serve ourselves, for example. Love issues from a good conscience. And finally, love issues from a sincere faith. That word sincere means genuine, uh, unfeigned, not fake, without hypocrisy. Romans 12.9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. So, so this is saying that in order to truly love God and each other, our faith has to be genuine. It can't be a false, pretend faith. That's what we want to be here at Wetaskiwin Mission Church. We want to be the kind of people who have hearts that long to be pure, who have consciences that are uh, freed from guilt, and to have the kind of faith that's genuine. And when we collectively desire to do those things, it will produce in our church an environment of love. If we keep nourishing and feeding ourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ, looking to see what he did for us and and to ruminate upon that and meditate upon that, the result will be a loving church. That's our target. That's our focus. That is our stewardship from God. And that's what we want to promote. It's what we want to be devoted to. That is the aim of our charge. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to let it be so as we go into another ministry year. year. Let's let's be a church that knows God's word and that loves God's word so that we're able to root out the things that divert and distract. Let's be a church that loves to love God and a church that loves to love one another. Why? Because God so loved us. Let's be the kind of church where we put ourselves under God's word in submission and obedience. And then to be so touched and so affected by God's love for us in Christ that we naturally express our love for God and for each other. Let's commit ourselves to these things. Let's hold ourselves accountable to these things as leaders, 
as those who do the work of ministry as a church. Let's bow together in prayer. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful yet again for the great gift of salvation. We thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you for awakening our faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sovereignly and providentially brought each of us who are believers into this church for this particular time. We thank you that you have given us the truth of your word. Help us, we pray, not to waver from it, even more so in a world that is trying to get us to stray and to swerve. Help us to regard it as authoritative and as sufficient. Help us not to swerve from the truth. And then we pray that the truth of the word and the glory of the gospel would produce in this, your church, acts of love toward one another. Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment, he said, the greatest charge. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. May that be said of Wetaskiwin Mission Church, we pray. And now as we go into a time of fellowship and, and feasting together, Lord, we do so because we are profoundly grateful for everything that you have given us. We're thankful to you for the great gift of salvation and all your added blessings. Bless this food, we pray. Bless all those that have had a hand in preparing for this day. And just bless our time together, we ask, for the remainder of this Lord's Day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.